Good afternoon. This is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. This is our once a month, every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eventually, we'd like to be uh, live so we can take callers, uh, but this uh, month we are not. We're, we're taping this, so my apologies. I'd also like to uh, advertise my Sunday morning Let's Talk Animals at 7.30 in the morning, covering various topics, three to five minute uh, talk. So if you're up at sun Sunday morning, sipping your coffee or tea, tune in. Today, I have a return guest, uh, Mark Bennett. Two months ago, he talked about how a pet product is actually uh, developed, how it's um, the idea of it turning into an actual product. Today, we're going to talk about how those products are packaged and the importance of packaging. So good morning, Mark. Uh, how are you today? I'm doing great, John. It's a pleasure to be back with you today. Thank you. Again, full disclosure, he's my brother-in-law, so he couldn't deny coming on this uh, show or he'd get in trouble with the family. Or maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. Um, tell us, uh, you're an engineer for uh, animal health industry. Just give us a brief uh, background like you did two months ago, just so people know who uh, they're listening to. Yeah, thanks, John. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm an engineer. I'm a mechanical engineer, actually. And so I have uh, been a practicing engineer for a long time. I initially uh, started working in the consumer products industry and then spent many, many years uh, as a consultant helping other customer, customers develop products and bring them to market. And then um, currently I work for an animal health company and I work primarily on products for, um, for small animals, for dogs and cats. And so my role at this company is to help to develop products, uh, determine how to produce them, and also uh, work extensively with my colleagues in the packaging area to uh, appropriately package these products so that they are in a good condition when, uh, when you, as the customer, buy them. So we're going to concentrate on packaging. Uh, I, I look at packaging when, I, when I'm walking down the aisle and look at a particular product is like it tells a story. There's so much information. So give us a little insight on the purpose of packaging, if you don't mind. Yeah, great. Uh, that's really an excellent question. And, and packaging is actually fairly complex and a critical part of a success uh, for a given product. And so the one of the primary roles of packaging is to protect the product. So many of these products that we deal with, they do have an, uh, a shelf life. So they have a certain period of time that they are good uh, and uh, can be used effectively and, and provide the full benefits that we expect from such products. And so the packaging helps with that. So. Um, we can talk a little bit more about that as we as we move forward. But um, you know, there are active ingredients in many of these animal health products, and they might be sensitive to to certain environmental conditions, whether that be um, temperature or light conditions or um, moisture or, or what have you, or simply just time. And so, uh, the packaging is intended to protect the product. Additionally, you'll find as you look at the packaging, there's a lot of information on there. So um, that information is intended to tell the customer what is in the package. So what is the product that they're buying? Um, you know, how is it how is it used, and what is it good for? 
And so there's a fair amount of education that we try to provide on the packaging design. And so we educate the customer, not just on what is in the package, but how to use it. So an example of that might be if you were uh, going to the store and you wanted to buy a, a flea and tick medication for your dog or for your cat. So you'd first want to know, you know, what is it that you're buying? And so, uh, but secondly, and, and equally as important is how do you use it? So there'll be instructions for a customer on how to use the product. In addition, there'll be information about the safety aspects. So um, there may be warning labels about certain aspects of it, but also, you know, how to properly use it, what to, what to do in the event of a mishap uh, with that product. And <clears throat> along with that safety information, of course, is, is contact information, should there be, um, you know, not enough uh, information there for the customer if something were to happen. Additionally, the packaging you'll find is, is often very um, distinctive in its nature. So there's a branding aspect of the packaging that, uh, that promotes the certain, the brand name of the product, it promotes the company that produces it. Um, most of us in the animal health industry are, are quite proud of the products that we produce and the companies we work for. And we want to make sure that, uh, that the customer is, uh, knows who we are and is able to remember that. And so the next time they go back and in need of a similar product, they want to, to buy ours again. So there's a, there's a critical branding aspect of it. And you'll see that in, in logos. You'll see that in coloring. You'll see that in imagery that's on the packaging. So uh, you might find a, a particularly uh, cute cat or something on, on a package that you like. And, uh, and that's all part of the branding message. And then finally, um, for some packages, there's, a, there's an aspect of functionality in the package itself. So those packages will allow the customer, the purchaser to dispense the product. Again, following the instructions for use that are included on the product, but um, sometimes there's an engagement of the customer and actual use of the product um, with the animal. So those are some of the primary purposes of packaging. There's other things that, that you might consider, but the, those are the, probably the most important that we should talk about today. Well, how about the, um, in some cases, the, the sensual aspect of packaging, the touch, the feel, the smell, you must consider that. Uh, absolutely. Maybe not the smell so much, although we try to avoid <laughs> bad smells, um, <laughs> yeah. but um, but you think about, we do in fact track um trends in design. And so if you look at uh, a, probably a great example are um, our cars, you know, new cars, what are the paint schemes and the new cars? What are the color schemes and the new cars? How are they advertised? And so some of the things that you'll notice um, in packaging follow some of those trends. And, and a good example of that is if you think about, um, you know, it used to be the, uh, the popularity or the popular Paint schemes on, on cars were very, I would say, very shiny. You know, they're very bright, glossy finishes, so on and so forth. Um, but more recently, they've gone to a little bit more understated look, like matte paint jobs, you know, things that are not so reflective, maybe some more subdued colors. And you see similar kinds of things in packaging. So the uh, the appearance, the what we would call the texture of the package is a critical aspect because that again, speaks to the brand, speaks to the image that you're trying to portray. So in some cases you want, uh, you want a brand to, to appear sort of fun and engaging. In some cases you may want a brand to appear more scientific and technical. 
Um, in some cases, you may want something to appear more, I would say, elegant and stately. And so the choice of colors that you use on the package, the choice of finish on that package, the types of images, like um, what does a picture of a dog or a cat that's on the package remind you of when you see that? So those are all very important elements of, of branding. And so, um, you know, so I think there are some customers who really don't, don't like that term because sometimes they may feel like uh, there's a level of... Um, there's a level of manipulation that maybe goes along with it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's really not the intent uh, of the, of the packaging and graphic designers. It's really about what is the, what is the message that we're trying to convey to the potential purchaser and who is the, um, who is the target buyer for a given product? That's what and, I was going to ask you. Does target your target influence those kinds of things, colors, and that sort of thing, depending on absolutely. who you're targeting. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, there may be a product that is more serious in nature. So maybe it, and when I say that, it, it maybe it treats a more serious condition in your animal. So something that, um, that you're concerned about, something that uh, you may feel could perhaps uh, either shorten the animal's life or make them uncomfortable. Well, well you certainly don't want to, to have a frivolous looking package for a product that's meant to treat a more serious condition. And so um, the target buyer, the, the situation that they may be currently in plays a big role in, uh, in how you design that package. What is, again, what is the message that you want the purchaser that ought to take away from the package design? On the other hand, if it's something that's more playful, if it's a, uh, if it's a treat, um, you know, you want something that's that's more engaging, that's more lighthearted, that maybe has uh, has brighter colors, maybe multiple colors that that will appeal to a broader audience. And so, the package design really is very much aligned with who is the intended purchaser. Now, I'm, I don't know if you can answer this or not. This may be privileged information, but would the same product uh, packaging be different in different parts of the United States or different parts of socioeconomic uh, um, clientele? So our packaging is not different in different parts of the United States. Um, we do have different products that are sold in different parts of the world. And in those instances, the packaging may very well be different. So if you think about for example, cultural differences and um, cultural differences, um, say between uh, between an American buyer and a Japanese buyer. You know, there are there are longstanding differences in those cultures, and there were different things that would appeal to people in one culture versus another. So uh, the way a package looks in the U.S. Um, may be quite different than the way that it looks in Japan, simply because the either the images or the colors or the way that you describe things might come across um, in a different way to people in those various cultures. And so it's not so much based on their um, than on their economic condition as it is on the cultural condition. Oh, okay. And so um, on the one hand, we do, uh, but I, I would also say that the economic environment is a consideration though. So if I have a product that is, um, that's a premium product, let's say in Europe, and therefore the packaging reflects the premium positioning of that product, 
but I but it provides a good benefit for an animal. So as uh, as product designers and package designers, we we will likely look for a way to present that product in a more cost-effective manner, let's say to um, to a market in South America that maybe doesn't have quite the economic resources that I might find in, in a European colleague. So that, you know, we're, we absolutely do not do anything that diminishes the life of the product or the protection of the product or the safety of the product, but we might reduce the amount of, um, um, the amount of, of, marketing or branding information that might be on there. Um, we might you know, simplify the presentation of that package in order to reduce the cost and make it more um, attainable for somebody who's in, a, in an economic situation that's maybe not quite as good as another part of the world. So I think that's partly what you were asking. It's not that, it's not that we make things bland or boring or unsafe, but we do try and tailor the packaging to a specific market. Again, you know, working to, uh, to get the most for the customer and, uh, and for the company, uh, that particular product. And overseas is very interesting because different uh, countries have different, put different values on pets. So the values that we put on a dog are different than values, let's say in China or Turkey. Last month, we talked about my um, guest was talking about importing dogs from other countries. And what that came up is how dogs are treated. So your cultural values, I, I assume, would be involved with your packaging. Oh, absolutely. And again, if you, you can think about um, kind of the evolution, if you will, of the relationship between people and their, their animals, um, you know, for the last uh, 30 to 40 years, you know, animals are becoming much more a part of the household. They're becoming family members as opposed to pets or maybe um, in some cases uh, where the animals were there simply for protection or they were there to, um, you know, to prevent uh, overpopulation of rodents or something like that. But now they're certainly in the U.S., they are much more family members. And so, um, as a result, the uh, the pet parents, as we call them, and, and you notice that that phrase has ch- changed as well. It's no longer a pet owner; it is a pet parent yes, in the I, United States because yeah. the pet the pet is a family member, right? And that is, um, you know, it is interesting that m- most well, I won't say most, much of the world is going in that direction. So, um, but there are still vast differences between how pets are treated in the United States versus other countries, just like you mentioned. And so um, that may uh, that may affect the packaging and the way that we present the product, um, but it also affects which products we choose to sell in different parts of the world. Because in some cases, people are, are willing to buy a product um, if they feel a certain way about their pet. Um, whereas in other parts of the world, they may not be willing to buy a product because maybe they feel differently um, right. about their pet. They don't need it. Exactly. They just don't exactly. think they need it, which is, you know, it's, it's neither here nor there, whether it's right or wrong. That's just the way they look at their dog or cat. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great observation, though, is that, you know, there are cultural differences. There are differences in how people perceive their animals in different parts of the world. And there are differences in, in how much they are willing to spend um, 
on their animals because you know there are in the U.S. We may uh, we may in fact um, go go farther in the preventive sort of health maintenance uh, mode of, of buying products and using them to to treat with uh, treat and work with our animals. But in other parts of the world, maybe they they don't have enough disposable income to make that choice, right? They uh, right. they do what's necessary. And um, and so, yeah, that's that plays a big role in how we look at things. This is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. You are listening to WERU 89.9 FM in East Orland, Maine. I'm talking to Mark Bennett, an engineer from, uh, that works for an animal health industry, and we're talking about packaging pet products and like like to go into the types of packaging uh, that you have to consider for a product. Yeah, and I, um, maybe we don't spend too much time on this today, John, but I think it's important just to, to give a quick grasp of the different types of packaging because it may become relevant in some of our later conversations. But um, so when we talk about packaging, there really are different layers. That's probably the best way to think about packaging is that um, there's what we call primary packaging, and that's the packaging that is in contact with the product. And so the primary packaging very often is the, um, is the first layer that is protecting the product. It maintains the shelf life. And in fact, it, that may be uh, what allows the user to dispense the product. The next layer on the outside of that is what we call secondary packaging. And, uh, you know, I think that's a fairly logical name, but there are two different, um, two different types of secondary packaging. There's something that we call a functional secondary package. So if you, again, to, to reiterate, the primary package is in contact with the product and main, helps to maintain the shelf life, but sometimes that's not quite enough. So a functional secondary package is something that further boosts the shelf life and, uh, and allows the product to remain functional for an even longer period of time. Um, functional secondary packaging may also be used uh, to do things like uh, prevent uh, theft in the retail environment, which unfortunately is something we have to think about. Give an example of that briefly. What's a packaging so, to reduce theft? So sometimes you, um, you know, there are, uh, unfortunately, there are occasions where somebody might be in a store and they, uh, they decide that they want something, not willing to pay for it. And so they may open the package and slip the product into their, into their pocket or into their purse or into some other bag. And so the, um, the functional secondary packaging designed to reduce theft is, is typically a little, uh, is larger than the product. So it makes it more difficult to, uh, to quickly slip away. Um, it's not something that can be opened very easily. So you think about these very, um, I will say, annoying clamshell packages. That like batteries, to- <laughs> like batteries. I can't even open them up at home. And uh, so sometimes you have to use a tool like scissors or something right. to open those. And, um, and so those are, that, that's what I mean by packaging that's meant to prevent retail theft. So it makes it, makes it more difficult and inconvenient for someone who wants to uh, take the product without paying for it to, to do that and not be noticed. And then we have uh, then we have non-functional secondary packaging, which is, again is um, it is an outer layer uh, on the primary package. And the 
the this type of secondary packaging is usually what has the information about the product on it for the customer. So this would have a description of the product and its ingredients. It would have the branding information, instructions for use. Um, it would you know, provide the presentation on the shelf. So what does the customer see when they walk by that product on the shelf? Um, and it would also have an expiration date and all, and tracking information in some cases so that if there were um, a, an issue or a question about a product in the future, uh, that would enable us as the supplier of that product to go back and understand exactly where that came from, when it was made and, um, and where it was made. So that's the secondary packaging that's usually the most visible. And then what we have uh, still another layer is the tertiary packaging. And that's that's kind of the shipping container. So that corrugated box that uh, if you worked in a veterinarian's office or a retail store, you would see and you'd have to open up in order to get to the product that you want to put on the shelf. And that's um, that's also very functional. And uh, that protects the, the retail packaging during shipping and allows the, uh, the people who are maintaining stock or tracking the product through the supply chain to know what is in the box. And so it's got information on the box and then uh, allows that to get to its destination, hopefully undamaged. That's a lot of packaging. That's a lot of materials. Uh, that's cardboard and plastic and ink and all that kind of stuff. So I'd like to jump right to sustainability. In other words, conservation of the materials you're using, because that's a lot of materials. I'm not being critical. I'm just kind of stating fact. So how do we address sustainability in our packaging? Yeah, that's that's really a good question. And it has become a more and more important question over the last few years. And I will, first of all, say that it's something that um, that we who are working in this industry are working very hard on, is to try and improve the sustainability um, of our packaging. And now there are many ways to do this. Probably the most obvious that, that you already mentioned, John, is uh, to reduce the amount of material that's being used. And so um, we're clearly trying to do that, but I will say it's a, it's a delicate balancing act between um, how much material must I have in order to maintain the product and its integrity for the length of its shelf life and then how little material can I use in order to maximize the sustainability? And so um, there are a great many requirements that we deal with when we're designing packaging. So some of those are with respect to the product life, how long it can last. Some of those are regulatory requirements. So many of these packages are subject to um, review and approval by government agencies, both here in the U.S. as well as around the world. And so there are certain requirements that we have to meet that uh, that may constrain uh, the amount of packaging that we have to use on a given product. And so another aspect of sustainability that, that we look into is not just how much material are we using, but what is the type of material? So you think about something like... Um, corrugated uh, boxes, for example. Corrugated boxes are, are a highly sustainable um, type of material because almost all of the corrugated boxes that you buy today were in their previous lives, also some other form of corrugated box or a paperboard carton or something like that. So, so that material stream is a highly recyclable uh, 
material stream. So that makes it a very, a very good material, very sustainable material. There's not much of that type that goes into, let's say, landfills or, or other forms of waste collection. Um, when we think about plastics, on the other hand, plastics are, you know, plastic is a wonderful material. It has, you know, enabled us to do many, many things um, throughout, uh, throughout history. Um, unfortunately, many of the things that make it good for packaging and for other types of products also make it a difficult material from a sustainability perspective because it lasts a long time. Typically, it's very durable. Um, but those things are are you know directly in conflict with our desire to have a have a sustainable um, have a sustainable I would say cycle of material that we can use, and so uh, again some of the products and I and I I'm thinking of one again it's uh, you know flea and tick products right now um, topical flea and tick products have. Um, have solvents in them. And those solvents are what allow the product to spread over the skin of the animal and, and provide the appropriate protection. And so unfortunately, those solvents are also um, challenging to, to package because they, um, over long periods of time, they can, uh, they can be somewhat aggressive and they can um, make it difficult to maintain that, that product in a, um, in a stable state for a long period of time. And so as a result, we have what's called a high barrier packaging for uh, those kinds of products. And that barrier means that they prevent moisture from transmitting through the packaging. Um, in some cases that prevents oxygen from transmitting through the packaging. Um, and we also have products that are light sensitive. So we have to create a barrier to light. And so as a result, the types of materials that we can use for products that have those sensitivities, they're quite limited. And so it's not so easy to say, I'm gonna take this product that's currently in this high barrier plastic material and put it into something that is more sustainable, like a paperboard carton, um, because it, it, it simply won't last. It, the product won't be effective. Um, I, I, I can't do that very easily. And so, as we think about the work in the area of sustainability, um, as much as we would like to make changes in that, uh, we don't have very many options at the moment. And so I will tell you that there is extensive research going on, um, not just within our company, but in many companies outside and many universities around the world, where they are working to develop um, materials that can be used for packaging that are um, that are more green, that are more sustainable for the environment. And so if you think about, um, or just to describe that in words, you know, that would be a, a plastic-like material that provides similar barrier properties to some of the things that we currently have, but um, would then be, let's say, compostable. So you put it in the right environment and it can be composted and, and go away um, in a reasonable period of time. You know, not a thousand years, but <laughs> so. Um, but again, you know, you have to. We have to weigh um, what is it that we need for protecting the product versus what do we need for the long-term protection and sustainability of our world, right? And so we're we are working very actively on that, and uh, it's it's something that again is a challenge, is a very difficult thing. It's not something that can change overnight, but I'll tell you, there's a there's a great deal of activity. 
going on in that area. And just to remind our listeners that not all plastics are the same today. Some are recyclable and some aren't. So your this research you're talking about is going to be uh, really necessary uh, in the future for our planet, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's a really great point, John. And so one of the other areas that we work on is we do try to use as many recyclable materials in our packaging as possible. Um, but again, because of the different needs that we have, very often we have different types of plastic materials or different types of materials in general in our packaging. And so if you think about the, um, the recycling stream, uh, what the consumer wants is, you know, they open up a package and they simply take the part that they don't need and they, um, you know, put that into recycle bin and then that gets recycled. However, if we have if we have packaging that is made up of multiple multiple materials, we may ask the uh, we may be asking the consumer to then separate those materials and put them into different recycling streams. Well, that becomes um, that becomes more difficult for the consumer, and therefore the compliance for recycling is lower. So some of the things that we are doing as packaging designers and as suppliers of these products is to try and get fewer different materials in our package so that um, this, again, is these are steps towards higher level of sustainability. Because if we make it easier for the consumer to recycle the, the, uh, the packaging, then they're more likely to do so. And again, we will prevent uh, materials from being thrown in the trash and end up in a landfill or some other uh, long-term situation. So changing the materials in order to, to get more uniform structures that are recyclable is another aspect of us, uh, of our work. And, um, and we also are working towards using recycled materials on our own. So, um, you know, that's a, another important consideration. So if you think about, you mentioned different plastics, you know, there are recycling streams now for plastics like called PET and polypropylene and polyethylene, which are all different types of plastic materials. Um, we may be able to use some level of recycled material in our packaging so that um, we not only make it easier for the consumer to, uh, to recycle in the end, but we're then taking that recycled material um, on and and reusing it um, in our packaging. So again, that's something that's easier said than done because the recycled material is not um, is not pure. You know, there are um, there are other what we refer to as contaminants in those streams. And when I say contaminants, I don't necessarily mean bad things. I mean that if I am buying, for example, recycled PET material, there may be some amount of polypropylene in that or there may be some of other material that's not necessarily you know contaminant as in contaminated water but it's a contaminant as in it's not pure pet and so the end effect of that is that the um, the characteristics of that material that i get from the recycle work stream are not the same as the material as the virgin material that has not been recycled and so as a package designer, I have to allow for that. And I have to be able to manage the variability that I might get. So if I, if I buy recycled material this month and I design my package around it, the recycled material that I buy six months from now might not be exactly the same. So I have to have a robust enough design 
that it can manage the variability of that um, of that material raw material stream that I get by buying the recycled material. And so, um, and then a further aspect of sustainability is not just the material itself or how much I use, but where does it come from? What is the uh, what is the carbon footprint? I suspect many of your listeners have have heard that term uh, recently. What is the carbon footprint of getting that material to the manufacturing site? and then getting that finished product to the customer. And so we look at things like, where, is, where are we sourcing that material? Um, how far away is it from uh, where I have to manufacture my product and put it into the package? Um, then how far is it from where I manufacture that product until it gets in the hands of the, concept, the customer? And so we're looking at all aspects of the supply chain. Say, how can I shorten those supply lines how can I use means of transportation that are uh, more sustainable, that reduce the carbon footprint? Um, how do I then provide that to the customer in, in a way, that, again, that, that reduces the carbon footprint? And so there are many different aspects of this sustainability uh, question that we're working towards. And, and I know that... Um, that my company, as well as many others in the industry, are truly committed to this. This is not... Um, this is not just words for publicity purposes. Um, and you know the level of commitment because, in fact, some of the things that we are doing actually cost the company money. And so it's, uh, this is not about increasing the company's profits. It's truly about what is better for our environment, what is better for the long-term health of the, uh, of, of the earth and the people who are on it. And so I, I really appreciate the commitment uh, that we've shown and that uh, – uh, that our board has shown to this topic of sustainability. This is WERU 89.9 in East Orland, Maine. You're listening to Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras, Dr. John Hunt, your host. And we're talking to Mike Mark Bennett, who is an engineer for an animal health industry. And we're talking about packaging and uh, recyclability and the complexity of packaging. So another complex part of this is some special considerations concerning child resistance, also making it easier for senior citizens to use the package, um, the complexity of packaging in that way. Can you kind of go over that? Uh, let's, let's start with child resistance, which is a huge uh, safety issue. It is. And, um, <clears throat> and there are, you know, child resistance is a is this topic that has been around for, for quite a long time. Really, the, uh, the discussion about child-resistant packaging started back in the 70s. And, uh, you know, there were certain events that happened and then certain government policies that were put in place that really led us up to where we are today with this whole notion of child resistance. And so there are different classifications of products. So um, you, have, uh, you have just normal Normal packaging, which is, you know, not subject to regulations, not subject to child resistance requirements. You have um, what you refer to as child resistance, which means that a patient has a specific test protocol to prove that is resistant to a child opening that package. And then you have a further category, which is called child proof. We're not actually going to talk about child proof today because there are very few packages that are truly child proof, but... Um, 
on the topic of child resistance, uh, you know, that's quite an interesting one. As I mentioned, there's a specific test and uh, without getting too deeply into the details of the test, essentially what it involves is taking samples of the package without the, um, without the hazardous contents in them and giving them to groups of children and allowing them to, to and encouraging them to try and open it. And what's really interesting about that, and I can I can hear you chuckling a little bit in the background, is that you can you know, picture in your mind, right, going into a elementary school classroom or something, right, and handing out this packaging and telling the kids, hey, go at it. And and that's not far from the truth, right? So um, those protocols really uh, are quite interesting because you give the the packaging to the to the kids and. Uh, and then you, again, encourage them to open them. You encourage them to, to use their hands, use their teeth, use their feet, you know, throw them around, do whatever it is that kids want to do. Um, and so initially, uh, when, you're, when you're executing that protocol, you do that without any instruction to the, to the kids. Um, but then you actually show them how to open the package. And then you give it to them again. And so um, that's partly what makes it what makes it difficult. And so uh, to talk a little bit about design of packaging for child resistance. So, um, you know, again, this is this is a very challenging aspect of, of packaging design development. So if you think about kids, they they are um, they are amazing. You know, they will do they will do about anything if they want to to get into something. They will try things that you and I as adults would never even consider. Right. And so um, what we do from a design perspective is, is we have to rely on the um, usually superior cognitive abilities of adults and, and uh, designing these child resistant packages um, because you can't rely on the strength of something because, you know, some kids are very strong. Um, you know, I have seen uh, observed tests, child resistant tests where, you know, kids will, um, they'll find some way to take a, take a package and, you know, soak it in water before they try to get into it. And so <laughs> you can imagine in some cases they're in an environment where maybe there's a, maybe there's a sink or maybe there happens to be a bucket with some water or maybe there's a fish tank and, uh, you know, it's amazing what they will do. But anyway, so you can't rely on strength, first of all, because kids can be very strong, um, and their strength scale actually overlaps with those of many adults. So if you think about, you know, stronger children are, are typically stronger than weaker adults. And so, as, a, as I said, we have to rely on the cognitive abilities. And typically the way that plays out, um, and I'm sure that most of, uh, most of your listeners are familiar with this, is you require two simultaneous actions, two completely separate or disparate simultaneous actions in order to open a package. And so a classic example is like a, a prescription pill bottle that most of us have seen. And um, the lids on those prescription pill bottles, you know, we may not like them, but it requires us to push down and then turn the cap in order to take that off. Well, that's a child resistant closure. And it requires those two actions, first pushing down and then rotating in order to get that cap off. Um, you've seen others that, uh, you know, many products like aspirins and other headache remedies have these where you have to take a cap and you rotate it until 
you have aligned an arrow on the cap with a, another arrow on the bottom. And that's the only place that you can then push the cap off the bottle. Well, those are two t- different types of, uh, of child-resistant packaging. Um, <clears throat> but there are many others, right? Those are two simple examples that I think people are familiar with. Um, but there are others uh, that you might find on, um, on mouthwash, or you might find them on um, pill packages. So you think about things like a, a uh, uh, I might have a, um, a blister card that has a bunch of, um, bunch of pills in it, right? And so it used to be that all you had to do um, was simply push on the top surface of the pill and it would pop out through the aluminum foil on the back, and then you could you could take your pill, right? Well, for that is not a child-resistant package. And so nowadays, you'll find that very often you have to do something else. You have to peel off a backing layer um, from that blister card before you can then push your pill through. And so those two different actions are, are what allow that package to satisfy the child-resistance criteria. And so... Um, there are many products for which uh, child resistance is mandatory. So again, as a, as a product designer, as a package designer, I have to understand what those are, what are the requirements by the government agencies, and, um, and what do I then have to do in order to satisfy the child resistant requirement. Um, but then there are other products that the companies who sell those products have simply decided that they are concerned enough about a particular product that they want to put it in a child-resistant closure or a child-resistant package. And so, um, but in either case, you know, in order to claim child resistance, you have to pass this test protocol that I mentioned. And, and again, there are a lot more details to it than what I described, but that's the basics of it. If, if you had a, uh, you, you have a flea and tick product, it's a topical, your company. Um, so it's, it's little tubes, right? Yes. Yeah. So just brief an example, how is that child resistant that, because that's not a bottle because we are, we're all, we all recognize the bottle resistance, but how about a package of tubes that have potentially toxic things in it? Yeah, that's, that's another great question. If you recall, we talked earlier about the functional secondary packaging briefly. And so um, in our case, that functional secondary packaging is, is what is providing the child resistance. So we have, we have that little tube. We refer to that as a pipette. Um, that's the primary package. That's the primary package. And then that goes into a, another blister package, um, which is the functional secondary package. And so that blister package, um, depending on which product you're talking about, either has to be opened in a certain way. In other words, I can peel back the blister and then gain access to the primary package by doing that. Um, or in some cases, I need to use a tool. I need to use scissors in order to open that blister and get to the um, primary package. So it's interesting. You know, we we do get some comments from customers who say, why have you made this package so hard to open? I am having a hard time getting into this. Well, it's precisely for this reason of child resistance. And so, um, but using a tool is something that... Uh, that allows uh, some packages to pass this child resistance protocol, making the opening complex um, and requiring some level of uh, 
some level of thought and dexterity to do it is another way to do it. And then, like I said, having these two separate actions that you have to perform at the same time is yet a third way. So what's, you know, the, the child resistance aspect is actually alone is challenging, but, but usually doable. What makes it even more challenging is then um, the corresponding, what we call senior friendly packaging. And so senior friendly means that um, an incessant refer necessarily to just senior citizens. It's just anybody who may have limited dexterity or limited strength in their hands. Um, and so how do I then make a package that is both child resistant and friendly to seniors? So I want, um, you know, I want my grandmother to be able to open this package, um, but I don't want my four-year-old kid to be able to open it. And so that's how we have to think about it. And we have to look at the characteristics of those um, two different demographics and say, what, what are the nature of those people? So, so again, the kids are going to do about anything to try and get into this package. Um, but, the, um, but the seniors, you know, the adults who we want to be able to get in the package, they're going to want to do something that's very logical, that's easy to do, that they can do every time. And, and um, especially with arthritic hands and that sort of thing. Exactly. And so, so that's a, you know, that's a very complicated problem and one that, um, that quite honestly, we spend a lot of time dealing with um, how do we match the, the senior friendly needs with the child resistance needs. And so senior friendly, interesting enough, also has a specific test protocol that we have to satisfy. Um, and, uh, and when I, when I talk about these test protocols, I think what I neglected to mention is they are timed protocols. So there's a specific period of time that the kids are allowed to work on these packages before they, you know, before they get into them or not. Does, and, uh, just to interrupt it, does, does your company do these or do you farm that out to a company that just does testing? Or is that so, your company? Yeah, we do not do those internally. Those are typically done by independent test laboratories. So you hire you hire a test laboratory. Okay, now you can exactly. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. And that and that's important because we don't want to have biased results for one thing, which is right. a, which is a concern. But also the people who do this kind of testing, that's their area of expertise, right? So we we know about the testing, we know about the protocols, but we really rely on their expertise in order to run the test protocols effectively because in the end, you know, we are not, you know, the test protocol is a way of demonstrating the effectiveness of the child resistance or the senior friendly, but we are not about checking the box. You know, we really are about how do we, how do we make sure that, uh, that children under, you know, foreseeable circumstances can't get into this if they're not supposed to. And um, so we really want to get an independent view of that. And, and therefore, we go to the experts in order to evaluate that. So you have seniors uh, and so, room, uh, or that the company <laughs> brings in seniors in a room. We, we, we don't tend to lock seniors in a room to do this. No, <laughs> no that uh, wasn't a trick question. I wasn't trying no. to get you into trouble. No, the, uh, you know, the, the testing facilities, they will have what they call panels. And so a panel is a group of people that they have um, they've recruited to participate in this test. And they're all volunteers, by the way. Nobody's coerced, right? <laughs> um, and then uh, and similarly with the uh, with the children, you know, they are panels that uh, 
are doing this with the with the permission of their parents and the support of uh of whoever is uh, is caring for them at that particular point in time. So and just so, very briefly, what what is a component of a senior friendly that also meets the child resistance? On what it, you said, the child's resistance, they have to you have to do two things that kids can't do. Seniors, right. what's their what's the criteria for that? So it's again, but if I think about those two things that I'm asking the. Um, the senior to do it has to be within uh, within their capability, right? You mentioned people with um, with arthritis in their hands, so that's why you you very um, you don't often see like small features in child resistant packaging. You um, you know you want to have larger features. You want to have larger buttons. You want to have larger levers, so that someone who doesn't necessarily have the strength or they have some arthritis in their hands, they, they can get to them. Right. And so, um, and that's been the evolution of the, of the packaging over the last couple of decades is that, you know, the features have become larger, they become more prominent, but the function has become a little bit more complex. And so, so again, we're relying on the cognitive ability of those seniors to understand, Hey, this is the action that I need to perform. Um, in order to get this package open. And that action is within my capabilities, it's within my strength, it's within the size of my hands, it's within the, the, um, the ability of my fingers to, you know, depress a button or something. Um, and yet it's outside of the cognitive ability of the child. So the child doesn't recognize that they have to do these two things at one time. And, um, you know, there has been more recent evolution and, and many of the child resistant packaging uh, things that we've seen are the examples that you and I've already talked about. We've talked about um, caps on bottles, different types of bottles. We've talked about, you know, blister packages and how do we open those. Um, more recently, there have been some uh, there have been some developments in the area of child resistant cartons. So and this goes right along with the uh, sustainability discussion. That we that we had a few minutes ago was that we would like to have more paperboard, for example, in our packaging because that's a lot easier to recycle. There is more there are more recycling streams available for paperboard, but in order to use more of that, we need to be able to get child resistant functionality out of a paper package. And so those are some of the things that have come along more recently. I won't get into the details of how those work, um, but um, but there are new designs uh, to 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 promote that, you know, as we as we go forward. And so you will start to see, as a consumer, you'll start to see more of that kind of thing moving forward. Well, I have a, a imaginary phone call came in to ask you, how about pet resistance? Do you have to deal with that? So usually we <laughs> do not have to deal with pet resistance. Um, uh, pets, you know, as we as resourceful as children are, pets are that much and, and more, right? They are, um, <laughs> you know, some of them can be very aggressive. We do rely on the responsible behavior of the pet parents in order to, to keep these, um, these medications out of reach of the pets and also to properly dispense uh, these products so that the, that the animal gets the right dosage and at the right time. So no, we, we are not designing for pet resistance at the moment. It's um, responsibility of the owner. It is responsibility of the owner. Yes. Okay. That's they they gotta have some responsibility. You can't do it all. 
That's right. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and I, um, you know, as, as soon as you think, as soon as you think you've designed something and, and forgive me, I'm not trying to call anyone an idiot, but as soon as you think you'd try, you design something that's idiot proof, along comes a better idiot, right? <laughs> that's so, right. There's always, yes. <laughs> uh, so another, so anyway. another area, uh, is to consider is where the product will be sold and how, you know, you have retail stores, you have veterinarians, you have even online. How's, how's that play in your packaging? Yeah. Another great question, John. I think the, um, you know, most of us, we, our experiences is in the retail environment, right? We, we walk down an aisle in the supermarket or in a pet specialty store and we very often are looking for a specific product and we get to that section of the store and and we see the products on the shelves and either we know ahead of time what we want to buy or we're there to do a little bit of research and so for for those consumers who are there to do a little bit of research or maybe uncertain about what product to buy we have to make sure that our packaging um, the branding the imagery the uh, the overall appearance is really attractive again to the right customer for us. And so um, we're not necessarily trying to sell our products to every customer who walks through the store because not every customer needs them. And so we we look at you know what is the uh, what is the need of the customer for whom this product is right. Um, we try to provide a clear display panel for them that shows again what the product is. Um, gives immediate indications of what it's for and uh, and branding information because for many of our customers they you know they are loyal to our brands they know that they work they know that they have been proven um, efficacious they know that they're safe and so they go in the store looking for our brands and we want to make sure they can find them so so again um, you know I think the the retail uh, packaging is important because we look for um, the branding information. And, and so let me just take one quick step back. If we think about our customers, we actually have multiple layers of customers. So there is the customer who is the end user of the product or the person who's in the store buying it. But we also have a customer who is the store itself. So the customer, so the store customer, they need to be able to display our product in a way that fits with their store layout. And so you think about that, you think about how, how tall are the shelves? You think about, do they want to be able to hang this product on a hook or does it need to sh- sit on the counter near the cash register? Um, so all of those things are of consideration as we look at that store customer. And then we have the, um, the, the distribution and warehousing customer. So those are the customers that are responsible for getting the product from where we produced it in store where it's going to be sold. And so those customers are interested in having products that are um, well packaged so they're not damaged, that they can handle in their uh, in their automated distribution systems that can survive in a truck, um, so on and so forth. So we have to deal with all of those different customers in regardless of which channel we're selling in. But ultimately, you know, the retail channel is the one we're most familiar with. As we think about the online channel, which is becoming more and more um, important to all of us these days, uh, they have certain needs as well. So online retailers, they very often use highly automated, um, what they call pick, uh, pick and place systems. So, they, so if you order a product from a, a large online retailer, 
that order is automatically processed and it goes very often into an automated warehouse where a robot goes and finds it um, on the shelf, gets picked off of that shelf, put into your basket, and then gets brought to a person who then packages it. And uh, so it gets on its way to you. So we have to uh, have products that can be followed through those systems as well. But also the product packaging has to be visual because when someone's online, they're looking at the picture. They can't feel it and see it. So now your design has to be very visual. Absolutely. Yeah. And we do a lot of communication through imagery. So it's not just words. So whether it's the picture of a picture of the dog or a cat on the on the label or a picture of the product or a an image of how you use it. Um, that's really important. And, and like you said, those online packages, they not only have to work within the uh, retail, the online sellers automated systems, but they have to be something that's easily perceived in photographs online. And then finally, we have our veterinarian customer who has a little bit different needs. Usually veterinarians have very small storage spaces. They have limited display space. And so for them, the compactness of the packaging the clarity of the information is more important necessarily than, than the brand appeal. Because for the veterinarian, they, they know what they want to recommend to their customers. And um, so for them, it's about, it's about efficiency. So right, getting, getting the right product in the hands of their customer in a way that allows them to, uh, to operate their, their business and care for animals in the way that they want to. So very, you know, very different needs in those different channels that we call them. Those are, you know, the retail channel, the online channel, the veterinarian channel. And we have to consider all of those as we look at uh, products that are being designed. And we have like 30 seconds. Um, anything you wanted to add uh, thoughts about packaging for our listeners? Well, just that, uh, that it can take quite a long time to develop these kind of packages. There are many different steps involved. And so we look at everything from, what is the product to who we're going to sell it to, where we are going to sell it, how is it going to get there, how long does it need to last, and then ultimately how is the customer going to dispose of it. And it's that last piece, the disposal, that's becoming more important for us uh, these days. So we will continue to work and improve and hopefully uh, provide reliable packaging systems to all the customers and regardless of their channel or where they are around the world. And you have to meet a budget. And we do have to meet a budget, always. Yeah, we yeah. talked about that last time. There's always money so to consider. And that's a whole, that could be a whole new pro, whole different program, <laughs> actually. Well, another great hour uh, of insightful discussion about pet products and this time packaging. Mark Bennett, thank you very much for spending the time. I know you're a busy guy, uh, but thank you for the time so you can enlighten our listeners about uh, pet packaging. Thank you so much for being with me for the hour. You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me on.